So, uh, Jesus has uh, been through a grueling trial, and then in uh, 22 to 26, we see how they crucified him. And uh, they put the inscription above his head that says, the King of the Jews. Now we're reading the, the things that are going on while he's on the cross. So, 27 to 32. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So, who's with Jesus as he's crucified? Two robbers. Two robbers. Is that, is that appropriate in some ways? I mean, you think about it. Jesus spent his life, essentially, in the company of sinners. And so maybe there's a sense in which it's fitting that he dies between them. And, um... This also would fulfill a passage like Isaiah 53 that says he was with the wicked at his death. And it kind of shows you how they saw Jesus. You know, would you expect Jesus to have a cross maybe isolated by himself, you know, maybe decorated up and, you know, spotlights on it and things like that? I mean, it's kind of the way we look at the cross. But how were they looking at it? Yeah, absolutely. Got a couple of riders and a couple of robbers and whatever else you want to call him. I'm not sure what they uh, ultimately would have said, you know, about uh, about the charge against him. But but uh, you know he's, he's he's crucified right along with them, um, which might make you think a little bit more about the what what that means and, and how it feels to him. Well, to the Jews, wasn't the crucifix like the worst way to die? Oh, but anybody else too? Well, yeah. I mean, it's not how they looked at it. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, yes, how they looked at it and stuff. It was the Romans' preferred method of execution. You know, it's how they killed criminals, and so it was their electric chair. Except we're into humane punishment. They weren't. They were into exemplary punishment. <laughs> we want to kill them without hurting them. Yes. <laughs> the Romans didn't have those inhibitions. Oh, okay. So yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean. You know, what would you have felt if you'd have been crucified? A lot of pain. A lot of pain. <laughs> I know if you meant emotional or physical. <laughs> I meant physical. I mean, what, what would that have been like if you crucified? You said physically, right? Yeah, physically. <coughs> Lots of pain. I mean, pain in... read the descriptions. Pain in the arms and the... The chest and all of those muscles tighten up, and as well as just having some big metal thing stuck through your hands and feet, and and being in that position, you can't really move, you can't really breathe right. Why can't you breathe right? You have to pull up every time you you have to pull up for air. You're, you're whenever you're, you got your hands out, you got your lungs are flat, you can't really breathe very well. You have to pull yourself up on those nails for air. How would that have worked? Would you have kept pulling yourself up? Until you were so exhausted, so you tired of the pain, you couldn't do it anymore? Think about it. 
Okay, so you ha- think about how that, that all works. Would you be pulling yourself up? Pushing You'd be up. pushing yourself up a whole lot more than you're pulling yourself up because your legs are a lot stronger than your arms. So they might work together, but you're more going to be pushing yourself up with your legs. And pulling with your arms doesn't take the pressure off of the upper part. That just puts more pressure on the upper part. No, but I think, I, I don't know, I think it could still o- open up your chest cavity some for, for air. But I think they would have mostly pushed off with their legs somewhat to be able to breathe. But how's that going to work? I mean, how how deep a breath are you going to be taking? Not very. You know, shallower and shallower. And your lungs are going to start filling up with fluid. As, you know, you get poor circulation, you get less oxygen, oxygen exchange, your muscles are getting tireder. You know, it's hurting more and more every time you breathe. And so basically, as I understand it, what, what, how did a man being crucified die? Yeah, basically he's, he asphyxiates. You know, he, he, he can't take any more area, and he just dies. And that explains, you remember uh, what they did with uh, the two thieves on either side of Jesus, because they didn't want the body... <laughs> Uh, there uh, during the Passover broke their legs. Do you understand why they broke their legs? Break their legs. It's a whole lot can... harder to push up on broken yeah. legs. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It's not gonna work. Pulling up, even if that worked, your your arms don't have any strength. In them. You're not gonna be able to pull up very long. And so basically, breaking their legs finishes them off. Uh, they don't have to do that with Jesus because he was already dead. I think the, the position that you're in. There's not, you can't. There's nothing to pull, even if you're. Yeah, you're especially if your if your arms were out like this. I think we're not sure how the arms work. If your arms are out like this, yeah, you're exactly right. Then you're there's not. not there's not much to pull on. You're yeah. in the, your arms are in the yeah, wrong it position. Work. So yeah, yeah. If, if your arms were up above you, then theoretically you could pull somewhat, but I think not very effectively for very long time. It was a really horrible way to die. I mean, that's just being tortured. As you die, <clears throat> you know, physically speaking. So, what are they? What are the, the the people around the cross saying? They mocking him and telling him that you know, if you already say you are, then take yourself down from the cross. Yes. Yeah, I'm just sort of taunting <laughs> him, you know, as if he couldn't do it. Ah, you said you're gonna tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself from this. Come down from the cross. Big talk. <laughs> yeah. How would that make you feel? Little. Yeah, yeah. little. It's sad that they misunderstood everything that he said. <laughs> I mean, because yes. he is doing exactly what he said. That, but he was, they were in the process of destroying the temple, weren't they? Right. And, in other words, I mean, I don't know what his feeling would have been, but been looking at those people and say, well, you, you've missed the whole picture. You, you know, you're, you're thinking that I'm failing in this, and I'm doing exactly what I said I was going to do. Yeah, and if you stop and think about it, Jesus taught his disciples to take up the cross, not to come down from it. 
you know, and that would not, all the way around, that would have been totally the wrong thing to do. But have you ever been mocked and, and, and just taunted before? How does it feel? Humiliating. Humiliating. Yeah, sometimes, and sometimes frustrating because the things they're taunting him with, I know some people, you know, if you, they taunt you. It's not as bad when they taunt you with something you couldn't do. Right. When they taunt you with something that you know you could easily do, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, it's so much more frustrating because you know you could do it. And if, if I was up on the cross, I'd be so frustrated. It'd just be tending to me just to be able to do it, just to prove that I could. Yeah. It kind of gives you that feeling as a human being. Sometimes you can't do anything about it, but boy, if you could, you would. You know, it's, it's infuriating. You know, it's, it's, yeah. And I think it shows a lot about Jesus that he does not retaliate. He does not make any effort to get even. He does not try to have the last word. There's no self-defense. I mean, wow. It's so hard to be like that. <laughs> it is so hard to be like that, especially if you've got the power not to be. If they were crucifying me, there wouldn't be a whole lot I could do about it. <clears throat> but he could have done anything he wanted to about it. <coughs> and, you know, this, uh, you know, he saved others. He can't save himself. You know, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Come on down here and we'll believe you. Come on. Show us you can do it. You said you could. Now come on. You can just imagine the taunt, the humiliation. I still wonder if they'd really believe him, even if he did it. Because he did all the other things he did. Well, did they believe him after he was raised? No. So I'd say... uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know, but man, wouldn't it wouldn't it in us? It make you want to show them. Yeah, I can't do this too. Just didn't have that feeling. You know, he he wasn't he didn't have that revengeful that 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 anger. That that's really amazing. I mean, Jesus, the purity of Jesus' heart and attitude. It's just really a remarkable thing in a situation like this. Come on, everybody. Comments and thoughts on this. There's a quote. Um, I that it, kinda, it means a lot to me, and I thought about it a little bit more. You know, the the humiliation of shame that Jesus went through for us. You think about it. On the cross, in Jesus' life, His shame is now our glory. What was humiliating to Him is what means most to us. What's what what, I guess, from where, seeing where salvation comes even through his humiliation. Even the hardest things he did from his shame came on glory. Sure. Absolutely. It's a good thing he didn't come down to the cross. You know, (laughs) this idea, he saved others, he can't save himself. What's the truth about it? He could have easily saved himself, but if he'd have done that, he wouldn't have been able to save others. You know, including the ones who were taunting him. That's the truth. He had the option. For, it was an, it was an either or. He could save others, or he could save himself. That's right. He couldn't do both. Right. And they just think he's just going through this because he can't save himself. <clears throat> what? It, I mean, I think it'd be tempting at least to tell him off, argue with him, do something. Well, his state 
the statement they make there in uh, 29. You who are going to destroy the temple. Well, in John 2, he doesn't say, I'm going to do that. I mean, again, if it were me, I would have said, I did not say that. <laughs> that is not what I said. I may misquote it. <laughs> That's right. And spell my name right. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that exactly how we respond when we're unjustly accused? You know, how many people do you know unjustly accused who just don't answer back? We just don't 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 say anything. That's really a remarkable spirit on Jesus' part. Great example for us. And and it's an example, I mean passages like First Peter two specifically deal with that and, and use that as our example to suffer unjust treatment without retaliation. Just a really amazing thing. Other thoughts and comments through thirty two. All right, uh, 33 to 41. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. So as Jesus is hanging there on the cross from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that'd be from noon to three in the afternoon, what do you have? Not the time of day you expect that. <laughs> but it's like that the sun hides in the in horror at what's going on. And then Jesus cries out. In Aramaic, it gives you the exact words, but what it means is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus have said that? To let everyone know what was going on. (coughs) What was going on? That he was, for our sins separate from God at that moment. Yeah, I think so. I think he's feeling the effects of accepting the punishment for our sins. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave him that one law, don't eat from that tree. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. What do you take that die to mean? I think so. They didn't physically die the day they ate, but they did lose their relationship with God the very moment they ate. They were separated by their sins from God. 
Now, if Jesus takes our punishment, then he's got to take that punishment for sin. Not just physical death, but being separated from God. I think this cry is an exclamation because of how horrible it is to have to go through that kind of punishment, a punishment we'll never have to go through. Now, not everybody accepts that view of that passage, but I think that is the best view I know. I kind of almost see it also as a plea, as he's just pleading with his father, um, not only stating what's happening, but almost begging, almost in prayer. I almost see it as yeah. Also, to play, obviously, Psalm forty-two, verse one. This is the same cry that David makes in Psalm twenty-two, verse one, which has a number of other statements that are fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion also. David is a righteous sufferer, and Jesus is the righteous sufferer in the ideal. <coughs> but, I mean, I, to me, that's something I can't even imagine. I mean, to be, to ha- to be able to call it my God, to listen to me, to Jesus, he, he had separated himself from me. Yeah, and I think that would, you know, maybe... Well, I mean, if we're with the Lord, we'll never have to experience this. I mean, Jesus took that so we wouldn't have to. Why does he ask why? Because he's alive. I mean, I don't get understood what was going on, so why does he praise him like that? That's always puzzling me, too. Well, what if I ask this question as a parallel? Why does Jesus say, if it be possible, let this cup pass from? Doesn't he know what the plan and purpose of God is? I mean, he was born to that end. He, he's indicated that. I mean, how many times did he tell the disciples he was going to be crucified and, and, or be killed in Jerusalem? I mean, he knows that. So why do you say, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me? I think because that's, that's how he felt. Not so much that intellectually he's analyzing this and he's decided there may be another way. But just, you know, in his grief he cries out. I would say the same thing here. You know, why have you forsaken me is not so much a question asking for an intellectual answer. It's a cry of, of horror. It's just so painful. It's so hard to go through that. That's the best explanation I know. Would you link any of that with his humanity? Or not necessarily? <clears throat> well, of course. I mean, you know, Hebrews 5 would link the strong crying and tears accompanying the crucifixion with his humanity. I mean, he was he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And I think there's a little... It's important... For us to understand that he was human. Yes. And if you another way to look at this would be what else would he have said that would have indicated that? How else would he have said that? You know, would he have just made a, a statement? <laughs> it's, uh, you know what I'm saying? No. So, in other words, it's put there for maybe for our benefit more than it was for for his inquiry. <laughs> But in the form of a question, it means a lot more to us and his 
is humanity. The only thing I would caution is I don't think Jesus just said this for what it will show to us. I think no. he legitimately felt the distance from God. Right, but how, so the question is how else would he have said that? Right, right. It shows us that more yeah. clearly than most anything else could. Yeah, I mean, so he could have been praying, uh, you know, there w what would it have been? I know there's no other way, but... <laughs> yeah. Or, or at this point, you know, instead of why, we just say, you've forsaken me. Yeah, it, it's very helpful for us to see him saying this in terms of seeing him as human, and it's just seeing what this costs him. We are not dealing with just crucifixion as if that was something to say just with. <laughs> but we're dealing with him being... him dying. In, a, in an ultimate sense. With him experiencing the punishment we ought to experience for our sins. Then you've also got... I don't know if they would have recognized this. For some reason I'm assuming they would have understood looking back at least, this came from Psalm 22. So everything, all of the emotion and details, so to speak, that's packed into Psalm 22, the agony that's depicted there, would also have been brought to mind whenever, you know, <coughs> you hear this and your mind should, in part, jump back to that and go, he's not just saying, why have you forsaken me? He's saying all the other things and this is all that I'm going through. Or these are all of the things that I am. It's sort of a shorthand of saying all of that. Yeah, maybe so. Certainly I do think Jesus fulfills Psalm 22. And, and I don't know to what extent Jesus consciously here is trying to get us to think about all of Psalm 22, but I think it certainly does appropriately get us to think about and to see again that he was as you said like David he was a righteous sufferer definitely bringing that part into it uh, this kind of always puzzling me why what language is he speaking in here because he's like, like on the spectrum Aramaic so the Jews would not have understood it that's what they spoke well then why did they say he's called Elijah they didn't understand him, but think about it. <laughs> After you've been on the cross that long, probably dehydrated, you know, I doubt that his speech was very intelligible. And apparently this sounded something like Elijah. I don't know what Elijah sounds like in Aramaic. But... Weren't there others who... Who were there who would not necessarily have had Aramaic as their first language? Because you've got yes, a lot of the visitors. Roman soldiers. And okay. so some of the the Jewish imports is the word that's coming to mind, but that's not quite right. Who, who didn't live there? Yes. They were there, and so the it says some of the bystanders heard it, and they began saying, talking about Elijah. But I mean. They could have heard it in Eloi, Eloi, uh, Elijah, Elijah. That's the way you say it. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. Though it does say he said with a loud voice. So. <laughs> yeah, but just because he's loud doesn't mean his enunciation is good. 
thought he needed a drink too. So. And they gave him one sour wine. That was probably in, uh, to add insult to injury. Now I've heard it like takes away the pain or something. That was the uh, <coughs> stuff back in 1523. Okay. Okay. Too late for that now. <laughs> me stop and realize <clears throat> how close his relationship was with God and how how he had that closeness how he sensed that and I guess I will have to say that when I you know when when I sin and separate myself from God I don't I, I don't have to, I don't I wouldn't admit that the first thing that I feel is oh I'm now separated from God. I might, I'll eventually get there, but that wasn't the way it was with Jesus. You know, there was some relationship there that I don't know that <clears throat> I can appreciate. That's a good point. Good, good thought. Um, perhaps we need to be more sensitive yes. to what our sins do to us, yes. and certainly more sensitive to needing to be with God. And the more I think about God, the more prone I am to be sensitive. Yes. And so thus it may, would make sense that for Jesus that was just, you know, heightened that much more. Good point. Sometimes we, like, a logical thing. Because, like, closeness to God is like a feeling. Correct. So... I mean, I think going through whatever this was, he would have felt it. Human relationships have feelings. That's right. Like that. Whether they're, you know, even though they're not necessarily tangible. Right. But they are, there are feelings. And, and for him to experience the punishment our sins deserve, he's having to go through a torment because of the death he's going through. We talk about heartache. Well, that's not just a, a, a figment of your imagination. That is that is a real emotional and sometimes carries over into physical feeling. Definitely. And like I say, I don't pretend to understand exactly what relationship Jesus had with his father, but the view here is that this is the cup of wrath. Yes. That the Lord, the cup of wrath would be something that we could never endure, which would be the separation from Him. Right. Going on, Jesus would be able to we won't have to, to drink it because He did in our lives. And then He dies in verse 37. And again, you know, there's such a <coughs> matter-of-factness about this account. Do you just say that? You know, as Mark? As somebody who loved him? As somebody who sees the outrage and, and, and injustice of this? And yet, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He surrenders. Totally vulnerable 
by choice to the world's violence and injustice. And um, what else happens as he dies in verse 38? Well, the temple was torn in two. Wow! What causes that? It was a powerful death. Because it was torn from top to bottom would indicate the Lord is doing the tearing. Well, why did he tear the, the veil, the curtain there, uh, when Jesus died? And so Jesus' death ended the separation. Really, the veil symbolized man's sin that separated him from God. Through Jesus' death, he was providing the atonement for sin and thus access to God through the blood of Christ. The veil is torn in two. Now there's a way for us to come into fellowship again with God. So, (coughs) really this just symbolizes what Jesus' death accomplishes. What might the priests have thought when they saw the veil torn? I have no idea. And how did they, I mean, we're on the eve of the, not exactly the eve of the Passover, but the eve of of, of the Sabbath. There are things they're supposed to be doing, going into the, they're supposed to be going into into the, in there perhaps, is the veil to the Holy of Holies? Yes. So, they're in the holy place, and suddenly the veil that keeps them safe from the Holy of Holies is torn. I mean, how in the world could they have explained it among themselves even, or something? I just, I just see that picture, you know, going about my business, and then I look up, and it's torn, and I can see into the Holy of Holies. Kind of a bit of a problem. Run screaming from the room is what I'm thinking, but I don't know. Yeah. How could you? I didn't do it. One of those. How can you complete your duties when? I'm assuming they fixed it because they kept. Yes. Need some emergency seamstresses. relying on the temple but it was God's message basically the temple is, is no more it's it's done yeah that form of worship and that access to me is no more but really if there's no more barrier to being in God's fellowship then God doesn't need to be contained within a building right and that was his his dwelling place and he's no longer because there was so much emphasis on not coming too close. I mean, even when they built the tabernacle, you couldn't invade the space around the tabernacle. And I mean, you know, you can't barge into the presence of God. But now the way's open, the access. And it fits in with other places. I mean, we are now high priests. We all have access to the Holy Holy. Sure. And we just have that that real fellowship with God that we would not have had otherwise. I've heard people say, kind of wondering if this would be accurate, that somewhat 
veil is broken, we are now standing in the Holy of Holies. We are now in the presence of the Lord. Um, almost the idea of, like Christian, we are the high priest, but even where we stand today, we are in the Holy of Holies. Well, look at a passage like Hebrews 10. And that, I think that's the point that's being made here. Hebrews 10, 19 Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith and so forth. We can draw near through the blood of Christ. We can come into God's presence through Jesus' death. That, that provides access because it cleanses sin. Amen. And the couch is open. All right. Other thoughts about the veil being ripped? Um, I don't know exactly what to make of this, but there is kind of an interesting deal between this passage and the very beginning of Mark. I, I, like I said, I'm not sure what to do with this completely. But Mark begins with Jesus is the Son of God in Mark 1.1 and the centurion will proclaim him as the Son of God. And, and in verse 10 the heavens were torn in two. I believe I'm right, that's the same verb. Says heavens open, but it really they're ripped apart. So just as the heavens were ripped apart and Jesus declared to be the Son of God in the very beginning of Mark, now the veil is ripped apart and Jesus is declared to be the Son of God at the end of Mark. Maybe there's some significance to that. The centurion is impressed. He, he's he's been convinced this is the Son of God. And uh, then he mentions these women who were watching from a distance. I've read this. I don't know. I haven't. Ver- I don't have a way to verify this. But I've read that Mary and Salome account for almost half of all the women's names that we have in surviving sources from Palestine in that era. Or a ton of Marys and Salomes. So, not surprising that here we've got two Marys and Salome that are there watching. There's a ton of Marys in the New Testament. Good night. They're all over the place. Alright, comments and questions on this. So what did the centurion see that convinced him that this was the Son of God? Good question. Because I don't think the veil was out there on Calvary. <laughs> no, I don't suppose he knew about the veil. He wouldn't even have known about the veil. Yeah, so I agree. I'm assuming it was dark out there until the hour that he died. But now it's light. So you would, you know, I even wonder the priests and all those that, you know, that accused him and everything when he's hanging on the car cross all of a sudden it gets dark in there. <laughs> huh. <laughs> And it's just a, uh, you know, random eclipse. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit longer than it's possible for an eclipse to last. <laughs> <laughs> you correlate that with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 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 Ye
constellation here. Extended eclipse. So what else would he have seen? Well, he saw the way he breathed his last, says. <laughs> well, he probably saw the two robbers breathe their last. But he saw the way he breathed his last. I wonder if Jesus didn't breathe his last differently. How so? <laughs> didn't want a demonstration. I've heard that that part of it may have come from chances are the centurion had seen lots of crucifixions. Um, but Jesus was still able to cry out with a loud voice with some strength. And then he just dies. And that's usually not the way that they went that it was usually much more much slower the weakness was gradual and, and and that may have been part of it that there was this something about it that it was obvious that he stopped that he stopped yes I wonder if it wouldn't have been much more uh, you know with the ordinary criminals if there wouldn't have been a lot more trauma, a lot more agitation, a lot more crying out and pain and anger and anguish and crying and carrying on. I wonder if Jesus didn't, through his tranquility, even the way he breathed his last, as he had endured those last few hours in silence, but didn't show some sort of a, a calmness and a, a self-possession that would have been rare in that kind of a situation. I mean, you see a guy like that <clears throat> going through a lifetime saying a word, except for a couple of words you couldn't hardly understand if it were definitely right. Um, you got to think, whoa, who's this guy? Where'd he come from? And why is he crying out in pain? It's not like he's not in pain here like all the others. And it's going to grab your attention. And if anything, I, if it was me, I'd be sitting here watching this guy, just seeing how, what's he doing. Is he mute? Can he not talk? Why is he, why is he doing this? Good point. Mark doesn't record everything that Jesus says. That's true. Too, so the centurion no doubt heard things that Mark doesn't talk about here, so that could have played into it also. Good point. That's I don't know that we can necessarily determine that the centurion believed that he was the Christ, the Son of God. I, I guess we don't know how much to put in translation. Could mean that he was the son of a god or something like that. So he was, he was different. <laughs> he was impressed, but exactly how far that goes, I don't know. Right. And the in Luke twenty thirty seven. Um, now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, "Certainly, this man was innocent," which is something a little bit different than. And I assume he said both of those things. Yeah. And was, I mean, it looks to me like he's seen some things by Jesus' manner on the cross that he doesn't normally see mm -hmm. with people being crucified. No, the, I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. The sixth hour was noon and the ninth hour was three. That's, right. that's correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Just when you don't expect to have darkness. Yeah, exactly. Okay. They had darkness from midnight to three in the morning would not have been nearly as significant. <laughs> Probably not worth mentioning. No. Hmm. I guess maybe 
and the robbers and other people would still be trying, like, desperately to breathe up until the last moment, and Jesus seems more to, like, surrender himself. Good point. Stop. Yeah, good point. And checking out parallel accounts again, in Matthew 54, it says, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the earthquake, the darkness, all of these other things, figuring in <coughs> kind of... There's a lot of things that happen that would make an honest person think there's something, there's something different here, yeah. Other comments? All right, 42 to 47. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked, and if he had been dead for some time. So when he had found out so when he had found out from the centurion he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph of Joseph observed uh, where he was laid. Alright. Um this is the day of the preparation for the Sabbath, so there's uh, no time to waste. There's a man who asks for Jesus' body. Who's that man? Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea. Who was he? Which means the what? Sanhedrin is what we call that. Kind of the Jewish Supreme Court. So he's a Jewish leader. He's been waiting for the kingdom of God, and what does he do? gathers up his courage, yeah. goes into Pilate and says, I would like the body of Jesus now, please. Yes! He asks for Jesus' body. And Pilate's surprised that he's dead, finds out he is, and so he gives permission for Joseph to have the dead body of Jesus that he takes down from the cross, wraps in a cloth, and puts in a cave tomb that nobody had ever been laid yet. And there were some women that were watching this. So he gets a burial with a rich man in his death. Isaiah 53.9. He's honored. You know, in a way, it almost looks to me like, all right, you know, it's necessary for him to die like a criminal, to die between the thieves, to die humiliated and ashamed, but God's not going to let anything more happen than what has to. He dies... All right, now we're going to give him a decent burial. Put him in a new tomb that hasn't been anybody laid in before, and then three days later he raises him from the dead as the the proof of of his victory. And so uh, uh, the Lord definitely is is superintending this to where Jesus receives some honor that he deserves it all. Now you don't think they were trying to justify themselves in killing him? by, like, giving him a nice burial. 
Well, I don't think Joseph was one of these guys who was so much in favor of, of the plan to kill him. Oh, okay. um, in Luke 23.50, and a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He went to Pilate and asked, and in John 19 and verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. So he had been really a follower of Jesus. Somehow or other, he hadn't even given his consent to the, to the court putting Jesus to death. I don't know if he wasn't there. I don't know if he voted present. I don't know what he did. But he didn't actually vote for Jesus' death. Well, in Mark 14.64, it says they all condemned him, speaking of the whole entire Sanhedrin, I'm guessing. So, I mean, it would all make sense that he wasn't there. I mean, there's no way to get around that, I wouldn't think. Unless he pulled a Peter. How else would you get around that? They all condemned him to death. General term. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but he may not have been there. He may have chosen not to be there. That would mean also Nicodemus as well. If we're taking that as all, as I Yeah. I would take it that everybody who speaks, says anything condemns it. I don't know. Well, right before God saves Noah in the ark, God says he's going to destroy all flesh. Destroy all flesh. He says, hey. Good point. Yeah, all sometimes has to be modified by the God. <laughs> Good point. He really steps out on a limb here, though. I mean, he makes it very clear if his previous actions were not already construed to show his support of Jesus, which would have been just like, you know, political suicide, then this is. And, you know, they gathered up his courage there's exactly what, what we need to do as well. <coughs> was, would it be possible that he was there at the cross, that Joseph of Arimathea was, just because he knew about Jesus' death before Pilate did. You know, I'm assuming that Pilate, you know, wasn't saying, I think that's, need, you know, updates every ten minutes or something, but... Um, yeah, I think that's possible. And this also reminds me, talking about the burial with honor and everything, you know, he will not let his Holy One see decay. Yes. So, we did, we did, you did your worst, now you're done. And you know, it's convenient, uh, maybe we could say something more than this, but it's a convenient, it's convenient that this is a, a special tomb. I mean, it's a tomb cut out of the rock, it's a special place. We learn from other accounts it's one that nobody had ever been laid in. So when the body's gone from there, it hadn't just been confused with some other body or whatever. Uh, it's, a, it's a very definitive location. Not just that we, how uh, we got the wrong spot to dig, dig him up from. <laughs> And it was, it was Joseph's own tomb, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Which makes you wonder whether he planned to use it himself later. I mean, Wait, or if he understood that. Whose tomb was it? This guy, Joseph. Joseph. Oh, he put okay. it in his own tomb. So oh, I see. Okay. I guess it's like buying a casket for yourself 
people buy burial plots. Yeah, and you know, they're <laughs> putting somebody else in it. Buy your own cave cemetery. Did you know how expensive that was though? I mean, you probably had to chisel it out of the rock. Yeah. It cost them? That might cost them. Yeah, I suppose they didn't have dynamite back then, so. <laughs> Is it? What yeah. My name King James 746. Was that, is that pronounced hewn out of the rock? But is, does that just mean? Yeah. Probably. Okay. Does it say, what does it say? Okay. Hewn out of the rock. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. Yeah, to hew something is to cut it. Oh, okay. Okay. So, hewn. <laughs> this is a word we don't use every day of the week. <laughs> I got the word in my <laughs> Well, I look how, like, if you put an S in so an H, like, sewn. But I think it was. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Looks like related. That's our uh, very regular English language. Uh. <laughs> Other comments? Is there any uh, historical account of the darkness? Not that I know about. Oh, the Jews, I would have left that out. <laughs> <laughs> Other thoughts? Well, so he's in the tomb. And this is kind of, this is kind of a sad event. I mean, you know, he's gone. He's buried. That's the end of Jesus. I mean, you know, you can imagine how the disciples were feeling, how discouraging and disheartening this was. And we'll soon learn how the women were feeling. Got to give him a better burial, you know. Got to get him some more spices and get him really wrapped up right, you know. But they couldn't do it on a Sabbath day, so they're ready early on Sunday morning with all the stuff they need to pack to get out there and, and you know, really get this, this embalming, wasn't really embalming, but the wrapping with the spices correct. So, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, on the right side, dressed in white, a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where he laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going, to, going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled through the tomb, the trembling and astonishment that seized him. And they said nothing to anyone for their afraid. Alright, so you've got Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, Salome. They're bringing spices to get his body wrapped uh, better. Uh, you know, they'd wrap the spices around the body to preserve it, to make it smell better, and so forth. And they come very early on the first day of the week, because that's as early as they could come. He was crucified late in the day on Friday. The Sabbath from Friday at, at nightfall to Saturday at nightfall. So early on Sunday morning, perhaps as the sun was rising, they've gotten all the spices together, and they, they make their way out to the tomb. And isn't this so typical? They go out there, and as they're on their way, what are they thinking? Hey, who 
Who's going to mow that really big stone away? Whoa. Haven't that ever happened to you? You could have thought about this all along, but it actually dawns on you when you're on the way. Did you get the key? Yeah. Yeah. Heard about that. When do you think about these things? When you think about them when when you're almost there, when you're starting to rehearse in your mind the details of what's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, so so you can really see, you know, how this would be true to life. And the, so they come to the tomb wondering, how can we get the stone moved? And they leave the tomb wondering, wonder how the stone got moved. <laughs> you know? Because they get there, I mean, it's a huge stone. They get there and it's gone. It's rolled away. So they go on in the tomb, and what do they find? Yeah. Who tells them, don't don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Look, this is where he was. You know, there's, there's the spot. And what does this young man tell these women to do? Don't tell. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He'd said that back in chapter 14. He was he said, uh, you know, after after I've died, I'll meet you in, in Galilee. You know, a few people consciously make appointments for after their death. Jesus did and kept it. You know, so the the young man says to the women to tell the disciples he's keeping the appointment, get up there to Galilee to see him. But why tell the disciples in Peter? Wasn't Peter a disciple? <coughs> I think he wouldn't have felt like he was anymore. I don't think he would have felt worthy to be thought of as a disciple. And so Jesus sends him a special invitation. That is such a touching thing to me. After what Peter done to Jesus, Jesus wants to make sure Peter knows he's invited to. Yeah, yeah. Except <laughs> Peter some women. Except, what do the women do? Ran away. Said nothing because they were afraid. You know when when finally. The, the people are told to speak then they're silent you know everybody's been telling when they weren't supposed to in this uh, gospel so far now they're supposed to tell them they don't I think it's uh, I just not follow this I think it's interesting that the guy was sitting on the right side I like when the day comes you know the righteous will be on the right hand good point good I don't point. know because I realize I just I'm just sitting this whole passage reminds me of Psalm 30 verse 5 For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. That's exactly what you've got here. Comments and questions? Just as a random note, I remember reading about this stone that has rolled away. It was extremely large. Some people have calculated that it weighed between one and a half and two tons. That would be pretty large. Um, so, and that it was... You how do you the, know? The end, huh? I wonder how they know. I know. I know. The, what, I read, what I read was that 
somebody made a uh, kind of made a guess. They said this is the type of stone that was used uh, in that available in that area. This is the size of the entrance, and so this would be how thick you would have to make it so that it would stay together and all of this kind of stuff. And so you do all these calculations as an engineer or something and come up with this. I mean, you, so you've got your little entrance and then you've got your stone. And apparently it was on an incline just up from where it was. So you pulled this that out and it rolled down to where it was and then stayed there. But I've also read that the rolled away or moved away in verse 4, or in one of the parallel accounts, says it was picked up and moved away, not just sort of like somebody didn't just move another little stick and it rolled farther down the hill, but it was moved away. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't something that you would normally expect someone. Ma- Matthew 28 2 says, and "Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon." Where's that? That's uh, Matthew 28, too. Okay. <clears throat> so this is a big stone. Why? Why did they roll... Why, why, why did the angel roll the stone away? So Jesus could get out. <laughs> right! <laughs> did the stone need to be rolled away for Jesus to get out? He came through locked walls. Yeah, lots, 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 in, 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 in the, the theater, he just vanished. He just disappeared. It'd be a little difficult to know that he wasn't in there if the stone was still there. I think they rolled away the stone so the people could see it. Not for Jesus to get out. Right. That's a good point. I wonder which way he got out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so... I <laughs> Well, since the stone was open, maybe well, I, mean, <laughs> I wonder if the, uh, well, here would be the question: Was the stone taken away before or after he left the tomb? I don't know. Oh, I like to see in verse two that when the sun had risen. Yeah. Also, in the S O N. That's that's only an English thing. Yeah, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, I just figured out, like. Reading from Mark, he leaves so much out, like especially these last couple of days. Um, you know, he leaves so much out, like you know, <coughs> Peter, um, Peter and John from the way she did that. Well, now, stop thinking about this a minute. <laughs> when we say that he leaves so much out, switch. What is it? Second, I'm right there, yeah. What do we mean? He leaves so much out. Well, what we really mean is. He doesn't give us some of the details we learn in the other Gospels. Guess what? They all left a whole bunch of stuff out that we don't even know what they were. Because John says, you know, if all of his life were written in detail, the world couldn't contain the volumes that be written. So really, it's probably always appropriate to ask the question, why did the author choose to include this? That's probably always a good question. I don't think you should think of it so much in terms of leaving things out. They left all kinds of things out. But more like, well, why why tell this? Why tell this? But um, I don't know if you already said something, but I mean, I just was reading, you know, you said Matthew 28. And was the, the guy sitting, was the guy sitting in the tomb, the same, the angel who came and rolled the 
I don't know. Perhaps. Because when I kept reading in 30, and it says his his countenance was like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. Um, I don't know. And then I know when we just read it said his was wearing a white robe. I end up it was the same. You know what I mean? I assume this was an angel. That was sitting in the tomb. That's what I assume. Wasn't there a report of there being two? Yes. There are two young men wearing white shiny robes there. Yes. there. That's where you get in a lot of. I mean, people say, okay, there's you know con- uh, contradictions and things like that. But that's I think good to ask. Why did Mark write what he wrote? Well. We need we need to know that one of the angels spoke to the women. Was there another one? Well, they said there was in another account, but it didn't say anything, so it wasn't necessarily. Maybe it wasn't important. Maybe there were six of them. Yeah, absolutely, really? absolutely. <laughs> we have one account of two, one account of one saying something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, you you don't usually ask that. You know, you get two eyewitness reports of an accident. They will not report the same details. You usually would not ask, well, why did this one leave that detail out? <laughs> would you ask that? Well, you're an attorney. You're trying to win the case, you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's, what would be the appropriate response? It's not what they noticed. Didn't, it wasn't the thing that, that registered with them. You know, didn't think it was important. Yeah, or it's I not. Standing over here, not over here. Yeah, it's not so much that you left it out, as that that's not what you told. So don't think of Mark coming through this and saying, oh, "I'm not going to tell that. I'm going to leave that out." As much as you know, he figures out the the way he wants to tell this to get the details in that lead to the conclusion he wants to have. That's the way I look at it. Other comments or questions through eight. I I think I probably need to make some reference to this, although I'm not necessarily going to try to major in this. There is a debate about the textual authenticity of nine to twenty. And the reason there's a debate about that is that there are a couple of very old manuscripts that do not contain 9 to 20. There were a couple church fathers who said manuscripts they knew about did not contain 9 to 20. And therefore, there is a debate about whether 9 to 20 is really in Mark or isn't in Mark. Now, in the New American Standard, they put this in brackets and the note they have is later manuscripts add versus 9 to 20. That may be a bit begging the question. Um, and at the end of verse 20 for me, they've got a second ending. A few late manuscripts and versions contain this paragraph, usually after verse 8 if you have it at the end of the chapter. Um, so that's kind of an alternative ending. Now, what do you do with that? Well, probably the majority of textual scholars today would say that we do not have any idea how Mark ended his gospel. I think that is not the best explanation of the evidence that we have. 
You know, even textual scholars make mistakes. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts. We have all kinds of ancient translations. We have many <coughs> scripture references of the early church fathers and so forth. And for just there to be a very small number, three or four I think, manuscripts that do not have this, would not normally be a blip on the screen except it was two of the oldest ones we've got. But that in itself, in my judgment, does not outweigh the evidence of, perhaps we should say thousands of manuscripts, certainly several hundred. And particularly with two other factors. A, nobody believes that Mark ended his gospel. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. <laughs> nobody believes he ended it that way. Nobody really believes that he ended it with this secondary ending. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions and after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And one of the reasons that nobody believes Mark in his gospel that way is what? He didn't talk that way. He didn't talk that way. Don't find anything like that in Mark. <laughs> so that's pretty good evidence that that wasn't the way he ended it. But here's, here's the other factor that I think is frequently overlooked that I think is big. When we deal with some of these textual questions, one of the things we have to look at is possible explanations that would account for the differences. For example, sometimes it's clear that like a line was skipped and we can see that two lines would have ended with the same letters. So it's easy to see how it was skipped. That's an easy one. You, you, can, you can explain, you can account for what happened. And so, you know, sometimes, sometimes you've got conflations in the synoptic Gospels to adjust them to the other synoptics. In other words, you'll have a reading in Matthew that is altered to include something from Mark. That's easy to explain. The guy knew Mark really well, or he was looking at Mark too and he thought it ought to be in there or whatever. We don't have much problem with ones like that because we can explain how they originated. It's very easy to explain how this originated, that the last 12 verses were not there from a very small number of manuscripts. You know how you explain that? So to speak, but they weren't written in pages. They were written on scrolls. Torn off. Easy to happen. You know, gets a little tear in it, and eventually the end of that scroll comes off. That's such an easy explanation for why you'd have a small number of manuscripts that didn't happen to contain the ending. You know, we don't have much problem with the fact there are some manuscripts of some books that don't even have the last few chapters. <laughs> you know, I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, but I could be wrong, one of these manuscripts that doesn't contain this, or at least one of the very early manuscripts, like stops at Hebrews 9.14 or something like that. Well, 
said they have a rest We don't know why, but it did. I don't know if that got torn off or, you know, got started copying it and had to quit or what. You know, but we don't usually say, well, we've got a manuscript that stops at Hebrews 9.14, wonder how the rest of this got here. You know, so the fact that the end wouldn't be there, it's just not that hard to explain or that unlikely to occur. So with all of that, I really think, and I've changed my view on this. A number of years ago, I took the view that these last 12 verses were not what Mark originally wrote. But, but I really think that you put all the evidence together, the evidence is a lot stronger. That 9 to 20 that's in the vast majority of the manuscripts is how Mark ended his gospel. I just need to say that because, I mean, that's going to come up if I don't say it. So, do you have some questions or comments on that? See, I don't think that Mark added 9 to 20 and then, like, we'll bring it into 20. No, and the thing at the end of 20 isn't in the copies that have 9 to 20. It just sounds funny to me. That that ending? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it doesn't sound like Mark. (laughs) Yeah. It really doesn't. It's like, where'd that come from? (laughs) Almost doesn't sound like anything. If anything, it sounds a little bit more like maybe Luke or something. But even that, there, there's some statements on that that seem kind of weird. I think so. I think what you had <laughs> is you had a handful of those manuscripts that didn't have the ending, and they recognized you couldn't end it with verse eight, so they invented an ending. <laughs> so this is the this is the fruit of some scribe who wanted to help out. <laughs> it's nice and holy sounding. Yes. 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 <laughs> At least there's nothing objectionable to that in there. <laughs> Some guys like, this sounds discouraging, I'm going to write some. Yeah. <laughs> I think those who copied manuscripts that ended at eight knew something was missing. And so somebody invented a way to solve that. that and, and that would be the most common view. I mean, the textual scholars would agree with that explanation of how that, that ending came to be. They have a harder time, in my judgment, accounting for okay, so how did 9 to 20 happen to get in all these manuscripts if it wasn't original? That's pretty hard to account for. That's quite a long thing to put in there. Um, Not that it couldn't have, but to be in such a great majority of the manuscripts. So I'm certainly open to textual debate and there are passages that there's definite room to discuss. But in this one, I, I really think the textual evidence is much stronger to include those verses. You have the same view in John 8? No. John 8, 1 to 11, I believe, is not in John's text. The textual evidence is much different there. Yeah. Both from the standpoint that there's many more manuscripts that don't contain John 8, verses 1 to 11, and <coughs> particularly in the original language, the grammar and the vocabulary is extremely different from the way John writes the rest of the gospel. Both of those things are strong arguments against that. Uh, so I think John 8, 1 to 11 is not textual. The story of the woman caught in adultery. You're interesting, Mike. <coughs> Pre-1995 New American Standard in the footnote for verses 9 through 20, instead of saying that it was added, says some of the oldest do not contain. Rather that than is some more of the later accurate. have added. That is more accurate. Yeah. That, that would be... So they've had a little 
Yeah, saying later manuscripts add is really that's begging the question. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not a good way to say that. I mean, obviously they say that from the standpoint they're convinced yeah. this is not textual. I would say some manuscripts add John 8, 1 through 11. Uh, so I can see why they'd say it. But I think, I don't know, you know there are just waves of, of, of thought among scholars. And I think we're just kind of in this wave on, on Mark 16. And I suspect that'll come back around one of these days. But right now it's just not popular to say that that was textual. But I just, you know, the more I've looked at the evidence, the more I've thought about it. Wow, I think it's a lot harder to explain this if this is not textual. Are you saying the older ones did not have There are two old ones that did not have We've got a lot of old Bibles that I inherited from my father. So we've got a job, haven't we? We're going to look this. Well, I'm saying the older manuscripts, like from the year, in, written in Greek, from like the year 300, 400, that sort of thing. I'm not talking about English copies. I'm talking about the Greek manuscripts that were copied way back in the 34th century. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it depends on what textual basis they were uh, they were based on. Yeah. But 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 we're talking about very ancient copies. Interesting. Yeah, it is. Gives me something to think about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, some people don't, you know, we, we aren't necessarily informed about that angle sometimes. Uh, but we've got a lot of copies, and there are some differences among the copies. And the, the, you said the, the manuscripts that include this, they it all include the same thing. Yes. And that it's not... Somebody made up an ending, and then somebody made up one that was similar, and that one. No, no, they're they're essentially the same. The ones that include ninety twenty. There's a few technical questions as you go through that, also, but not you know like there would be. So yeah. This is this no. This is a, a Ryrie study Bible. Uh, they they are defending it, I suspect. They, well, they have. Uh, for the note it says these verses do not appear in two of the most trustworthy manuscripts of the New Testament though they are part of many other manuscripts and versions. If they are not a part of the genuine text of Mark the abrupt ending at verse 8 is probably because the original closing verses were lost. The doubtful genuineness of verses 9-20 through 20 makes it unwise to build a doctrine or base an experience on them, especially verses 16 through 18. <laughs> huh. Well, that's interesting because I would expect Riley to be strongly defending that. A lot of his colleagues have really strongly defended the textual basis behind the Textus Receptus, which would have contained that. But whatever. All right, you want to look at this? <laughs> now we've talked about it. Uh, how about nine to uh, nine to thirteen? No, wait a minute. We're done. We're Oh, sorry. Stop. <laughs> I didn't realize what time it was. Man, that went fast. Last time I looked at my watch, it was like five after. Well, we'll do nine to twenty next time. I just thought we were, I was like, we're going to I, uh, no, I didn't think about what uh, that was. Right. I didn't see. Uh,